You are listening to the Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beej, the advancing journeyman developer. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. Stop writing them cruddy apps. We'll start talking about the most common apps we write as developers. CRUD, or Create, Read, Update, Delete, and why these are so prevalent. Then we'll list off some of the problems with CRUD along with potential solutions to these problems. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, we went through DevSpace, yep. and there was a, a lot of stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, started on V2, the product I'm working on, uh, late last week. And I'm scrambling around, you know, trying to get one feature out the door before I go and have surgery Wednesday. And I've got an inguinal hernia that is putting me in a lot of pain. And as a result, I've, I have to go get it repaired. And I've had this surgery before on the other side, and it was painful then. It was about a week of uh, not walking around much, no driving. I'm hoping that advances in laparoscopic surgery will make this easier this time around, because I don't think they even had that really last time. Yeah, I'm thinking that was over 10 years ago. Yeah, it's like they practically, you know, go after your lower abdomen with a bandsaw or something. And yeah. now it's, you know, a smaller bandsaw, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's that's coming up. And so I'm just trying to get things uh, stable at work. You know, tomorrow I have to come up with a, um, you know, kind of a, an action plan for the junior and mid-level you know, .NET developers to make sure they've got everything they need. And then I'll be off for a bit while this, you know, while I'm recuperating. I don't know how long it'll take. So yeah, that's, that's my week coming up. I'm not overly looking forward to it, but I'm looking forward to eventually not having pain. Um, you know, when I did the talk at DevSpace. Um, I talked for an hour and then I had to sit for what, an hour and a half, I think after that, because Pretty I much, couldn't yeah. walk around. And yeah. We had a, I, I took a chair up there for you just in case you needed to sit down, but you, you were able to stand the whole time. So that was good. Yeah. I broke out in a, a uh, cold sweat from pain while yeah. I was up there, but yeah, I was able to stand stupidly. <laughs> <laughs> so how about you? Well, I am not a robot. I got that silver badge for Stack Overflow while we're at DevSpace. To get that badge, you have to meet a staff member in person and apply it to your Stack Overflow account while the conference is going on. Like you can't you can't get that after if they give you the badge, it ends at the conference end. Yeah. It, it was a lot of fun. Uh that and quite a few other things that we did. It was it was a really cool, interesting conference. On Friday, we went out to dinner with the creators of the game Pixel, Are You Squared? They were there representing Red Hat. It was really cool talking to them and then some of the other speakers that came out with us. But now that your talk is out of the way, I'm preparing for my talk at Bar Camp this Saturday. I'll be talking about the developer's role in Scrum. It's a presentation that I've given at work. So I already have kind of the basis for the slideshow, though I'm going to adjust it to be a bit more like the way that your slideshow was, how you had the main point and then sub-slides instead of the way I did it at work, which was one slide with everything. While we were at DevSpace, we kind of joked about having a beer or a shot before your talk, especially for you to kind of relax. And we do drink beer when we record and stuff. So um, I've got something... 
I think is a little bit controversial for IOTs related to that. So let's go ahead and roll the music. Like I said, this is, I think, a little controversial. It's a project called IoT Alcohol and Health Monitoring System. Now, this would be an interesting project if it were designed for home or personal use, but the description talks about using this to determine if employees are under the influence of alcohol or, quote, under bad health conditions. What does that mean? Exactly. Now, while you shouldn't be drinking on the job, there's a lot of ethical problems with this concept. First off, for the quote, bad health conditions, like Will said, what does that even mean? All the thing does is monitor your blood pressure. And that's literally a snapshot of what it is at that time. So you could have just been running and your blood pressure is going to be up. You sit still for 10 or 15 minutes and it's going to go down. Or you just had some hot sauce. Yeah. So it, it could be a lot of different things. And it seems to me like this was created by someone that doesn't really understand medicine, quite possibly. Yeah, or medical stats, Yeah, just in general. You can get a fair amount of information from blood pressure. But my other question is, who's monitoring this? Is it a licensed physician that's determining a person is unhealthy or too unhealthy to work? There's just a lot of poor assumptions and implications here. And as far as the alcohol monitoring, all it says is alcohol sensor, which is not really specific. Are we talking a breathalyzer? What type of alcohol sensor are they talking about here? You got to pee on the machine, obviously. Well, that really wouldn't measure your alcohol content. No, so. but it would be satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So the reason I'm talking about this is because it's something I know a little bit about, you know, the whole med school thing. And I want you guys to know that not all of the IoT projects out there are great or even a good idea. Now, we could have a much longer discussion on the idea of doing something because you can versus if you should do it. Yeah. And I guess this would probably be a pretty interesting project for somebody learning. Yeah. Because you think about it, like you and I could do this, right? We could set this thing up and then we could drink a few beers and we could actually like test the sensor accuracy and do all that like as an educational project. That's fine. Yeah. Like, As like a I policy said, project, not right. so hot. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was talking about at the beginning. This would be a really interesting project if it was designed for personal use, but everything in it set, talked about for work environments. The, the whole concept just made me like feel creepy reading about it. Yeah. So just understand that not all projects are a good idea. Yeah. Remember Jurassic Park. <laughs> right. Right. That movie had a lot of valuable life lessons for technologists. So who's talking to us this week? Well, uh, I got a personal Facebook message from Eric Wright, and we, of course, edited to remove some personal information he might not want public. Um, but he said, listening to the podcast, LOL, I first thought Colonel Bug 2. And this was, I guess, this past week's episode. Yeah. Uh, and I forget what I said. There's a major bug, and then I made a crack about it, you know, being upgraded to a kernel bug or something. Yeah, yeah, that was. I've, I've been on a dad joke kick. I'm sorry. It was. It, it was something about a major bug that got promoted to kernel. Yeah. Um, so anyway, he continues with, "I hate that I haven't been able to come to Code Jam since my awesome first Code Jam. I lost my job and immediately found a new job in IT as a PC LAN analyst for a shop. 
in Kentucky and work Saturdays now. I've been able to use my knowledge of JavaScript to fix a bug in one of our applications. Uh, he goes on to give some details that we won't share publicly. Because of my initiative and faith in myself gained from the Code Jam and from listening to the podcast, I was able to save the team time with debugging because I was able to tell them the exact issue from the debugging I did myself. I was given special recognition and invited to visit our corporate offices this coming summer. thought I would share that with you guys. You and BJ are awesome. Eric also goes on to ask about some other members of the group, and we'll get you in touch with them. If you want, you can join our Complete Developer Slack channel at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. We have several members there. Guys, you guys can join too. We have conversations about development. Uh, Junior Developer Toolbox crew is in there, and we're usually on a few hours of every day. So. Yeah, it. I mean, it varies, obviously, because we work too, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're usually somewhat available so if you're you know if we're taking a break or something like that we can kind of answer short questions and have conversations and of course a lot of times that you know later in the evening uh, we're on a lot more eric we're really excited to read that you're having such success in your new job a great way to take the initiative there and get an awesome win for you and for your company send us an email with your contact information and we'll send you a water bottle And guys, if you'd like a complete developer water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes to Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Google+. We're also on Path and Tumblr. Also, check us out on Facebook and Twitter Live every Monday evening. We talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer some listener questions as well. What is CRUD and why is it so popular? It stands for Create, Read, Update, Delete. Uh, These are the major operations that you'll see in a database application. You create a record, you read the record, you update the record, and you delete the record. Yeah, the CRUD functions are basically user interfaces to a database. CRUD manipulates entities in the database? Yeah, I mean, it. you know, the thing is, is we say entities are objects, but like a database object is not a programming object. And it's not an, a programming entity. Database tables, for instance, in SQL are listed under sys objects. So yeah, yeah. So it's, it's it's there's an issue of using the same words to mean different things in that particular environment. Yeah, and basically what's happening with with CRUD is this is a this is the database I- equivalent of like HTTP verbs. You know, there's get, post, mm-hmm. put, delete. I had to think about that for a minute for some reason. <laughs> even though it's written. I know. Even though it's written right there. I just like, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> There's a few other ways of looking at this. Um, one that I read about was called bread or browse, read, edit, add, delete. So browse would be like get a list? Yeah. It's basically a special variant of read to fit modern web applications. Uh, I've heard people like this term better because it sounds warmer and nicer than CRUD. But guys, let's be honest, CRUD apps are cruddy to write. And once you've built a few, you realize that they're pretty much all the same. Yeah. Some of the problems that you see with CRUD apps are similar to the issues we've discussed in Object Relational Mappers, because this is the pattern used by ORMs. Uh, we've created a list of seven problems that you'll find when creating or working in CRUD apps. And for each one, we're going to talk about the problem and then list some of the potential solutions for that problem. So the first problem with CRUD apps is that they're boring. They're typically mm-hmm. repetitive, as once you've solved the CRUD app, 
You're doing it over and over for all the data stored. Yeah, and this isn't just a prima donna thing, right? You know, people go, oh, well, developers, they don't want to be bored. It's the fact that you're doing the same thing over and over again, and you get kind of lulled to sleep, and you miss stuff because you're you're doing the same thing repetitively. Um, You make mistakes, or it decreases your satisfaction as an employee. Right. Um, It also decreases the amount of stuff you're learning because you're not doing anything new and different. Now, this is why... ORMs and other automation tools are used. Automation tools have their own issues. You know, apps are different and have different uses and flows, and the tools can add complexity by trying to be omnipurposed. Yeah, here's the stuff off the table, you know, put it on the screen, make it where you can edit it, make it where you can put it back to the database. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, this is the kind of app we're talking about, but what you end up with, with a lot of these tools is that because people have special requirements, hey, they want to, uh, they want to do something after a record of this type is saved. Oh, so we'll add a a post commit hook. Oh, wait, you know, it'd be great if we could do something before the record saved. So let's add a pre commit hook. Hey, you know, what happens if we're selecting a set of them? We should probably have something there too. Oh, wait, we need audit trails. We need logging. We need, and it ends up blowing up into this huge thing that's very complex. And so your choices here end up being between get the really complex over the top thing that you have to configure the crap out of or write repetitive boilerplate code for all kinds of things. For more specifics on automating writing to the database, check out our episode, Why Your DBA Hates Your ORM. I think it goes into a lot of details about the problems with ORM specifically. Yeah, and I think that would be a really great speech title. I wonder why. I don't know. Like, somebody <laughs> should speak about that, say, in Huntsville. <laughs> yeah, maybe like last weekend. Yeah, yeah. you know, because it should have already happened. Yes. <laughs> now, there's not really an easy solution to boredom, especially when the tasks need to get done. And we, we've talked about automation tools, but they can help. But you want to find one that allows some customization, especially ones that allow you to have most things turned off by default and then come in and turn them on as you need them. Right. Another thing you can do is to try to batch building CRUD pieces of the application. Yeah. And this is what Rails did when it first came out, right? Is you mm-hmm. would, you know, you would do uh, Rails new and then you would, I'm trying to remember the exact command line, but it was basically like, hey, here's my table. Make me a UI for it that does the CRUD. Yes. And then I can alter that from there, but it gets the boilerplate a lot of that mm-hmm. stuff out of the way. And people were pretty productive with that for a good long while. And Entity Framework does some of that too in the .NET world. Yeah. And Dynamic Data Entities yeah. did that. Of course, they did a, a lot less extensible model. And with some other tools, you can do that quasi-effectively within Hibernate. Uh, you, you still have to do a little bit of writing yourself, especially if you're using um, a view model model. Yeah. It just, it's... Those tools help. Like they're mm-hmm. a, they're probably like a forty to fifty percent solution. Right. Another is to use the "don't repeat yourself" or dry principle as much as possible. You know, try to write code once. Yeah, to be fairly generic. So you make, you know, this is where a lot of people start doing things, which is this is like my least favorite pattern ever, but I understand why it happens. Um, where they put a repository over a unit of work mm-hmm. pattern, you know, for basically doing CRUD. Can you give us a, a deeper explanation of what a unit of work pattern is? Sure. That's where it's it's like you open up the database. And you say, okay, I have this context that has all my stuff on it. I'm going to pull objects back, and then I'm going to change those objects, add objects, delete objects. And then when I save, my set of changes all gets committed in one shot. 
but it's object-based, not transaction-based at the database level. Um, so it's still wrapped in an implicit transaction or even an explicit one. But the the crux of it is, is that I'm I'm altering objects, and then their their representation on disk gets changed at the end of the operation. In comparison to that, what is a repository pattern? Uh, typically, the way I've seen that used, and it's not always because this is not technically the textbook definition of right. a repository. It's the way people misuse it. But where somebody says, "Hey, I've got this one table. Let me cluster all the operations for that that particular type in a class." So, like if I have customers, I would have a method that's you know get customers, you know, find customer by name, you get customer by ID, delete customer, that kind of stuff. They put it all in one interface, and they do the things. Um, you know, f- for that operation. And what will happen when you have a repository over a unit, unit of work so that you're not having to pass that unit of work around, what people will do is they'll say, I'll just create a new unit of work for this one task. And then what does the, what does the programmer consuming that do? They say, okay, I already have something that does this. So let me, let me build up what I'm actually trying to do, like a quasi real unit of work that's not in the unit of work pattern. Instead, it's a bunch of units of work that can fail independently. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and it, you know, it just creates a lot of you know extra transactions. Uh, it kills caching. It does a lot of bad things. That's why I hate this pattern. But it happens in CRUD apps a lot because somebody says, "Hey, I can make an I repository of this type." And this is talking .NET, obviously, but a lot of your other languages have some ability to do something like this. They create a generic repository class, and then they implement you know methods essentially in there for all these things. And then they can make a generic UI that hits that repository. And it works at the individual table level, but the instant your object model gets past that, you have a bad time. Okay, that, that makes sense. The other thing you can do, and we've kind of hinted at this a little bit, is to create templates or boilerplate code wherever possible. Now, this may be a little controversial because I know some people are very anti-boilerplate. Yeah, and they're anti-code generation, which is why they all code in assembler. Mm-hmm. Is because they're anti-code generation. See, that's the thing. It's like people are not anti-code generation. There is nobody that's in a so- that is a software developer that is against code generation. They're against obvious code generation. Those gotcha. are two very different things. Yeah, that makes. In other sense. words, code generation they have to interact with because there's code generation. Literally, that's a step of you know compilation and building and all that. Like that's they call one part of that code generation. So right. it, it's not code generation that's the issue. That said. Code generation tends to be people's golden hammer. So if they start generating code, they're like, oh, I can make it, you know, I can make it do this, you know, this broad swath of the work, right? Cool. It does the broad swath of the work. But then there's this 5% thing over here, you know, because like it did maybe 80%. There's 5% of it that I think probably could be code generated with a little bit more work. And then then the next 5% is bigger than the rest of the thing, but they still do it. And so eventually you end up writing almost like your own, uh, you spend more time writing the code generator than you would writing the code that it generates. And so you lose the time savings. Like you got to right. remember the Pareto rule. As I say, it sounds like that, that 80, 20 principle. If you can spend 20, if you can spend 20% of your time writing a code generator that will generate 80% of the code that you need. Yeah. Then you're ahead. Yeah. But if you spend 80% of your time trying to get the rest of that 20% of the code generated, you might as well have just written the code because you could have done it faster. Yeah, and with fewer bugs. Right. So the next one is that CRUD tends to have direct table access. The problem here is that this restricts what other people using the database can do, which makes other people want to restrict what you can do. 
it can also have some interesting security implications. You know, things like, okay, we, we pulled a, you know, entire customer object back, but we only showed like six fields of it. And there's one field called is admin. Mm-hmm. Well, if they manage to craft a post and you're not careful that has that flag set, it'll now get written to the database. You updated that, that record in the table when your view, you know, your projection of that object didn't have that in it. But because of the way that you architected it going back in, it can happen. Um, this is called a mass assignment vulnerability. And there's just, there's stuff like that. But the big thing here is that you don't own your database. Like your app may be the only app using that database, unless it's a microservice and it truly, truly owns the database, which is not how most people's stuff is, even though it maybe should be. If you're not the only thing touching that database, then that database is now a, is something you have to insulate yourself against. And direct table access makes that where you can't do that anymore. Like if you put abstractions in the database, which is, you know, how we suggest fixing this, then it's possible for the DBA to fix it or it's possible for you to fix it without changing your compiled app. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes sense. Because if nothing else, I mean, let's say that you know, you're an app developer, you've got a DBA and there's some other app developers on the other side. Something changes. Okay. If it's in your app, guess who has to fix it? You do. If it's in the database and you know something about databases, you could fix it or the DBA could fix it or the other app guys could fix it. Yeah, that makes sense. Because that's probably something that's shared across teams is understanding of of SQL. Mm -hmm. The next one is that changes to the database require changes to your view. So again, like going with the customer example, let's say that, okay, here's one that's come up a lot recently. You have a radio button list that has male and female as genders, right? Mm -hmm. And previously you were storing a bit. This is... You know, you know, that either, either you can say bit is female or the bit, you know, set is male. Right. Right. Like, and that's how you're, you're viewing that data. Somebody changes that field and says, Hey, we've got this other table over here, which is happening, you know, across a lot of people's databases right now is, you know, similar things or changing it from just two different characters that it could be to a whole set. Now you've got to update your UI. Now you, we can argue all day long about whether that, you know, you need to update the UI or not. But the problem is, is when it happens, because when they change that table in production, you have to update or your stuff is broken versus going, okay, we can leave this up for another day and we can fix our stuff and deploy on a timeline that's a little bit easier and doesn't nail the team. Remember that you don't want to lose optionality for yourself. You know, also, since DBAs are a lot of times under a completely different chain of command, like where I work, the DBAs are under operations, not development. Yeah, I mean, where I work, the DBAs are, um, they don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> but that that can also make the way that you implement your code subject to results of corporate infighting, differences between mid middle management or departmental differences. It, it can cause a lot of problems. And this is a situation that development rarely wins. Because, you know, the thing is, if we... If we were actually good at negotiating things and pushing, there's a lot of stuff that wouldn't be messed up in the development world. But Mm -hmm. we don't. On average, that's not what happens in the industry. So you have to insulate yourself. The solution to this is to make specific database abstractions per task so that you only have to change the ones that you actually need to change. Right. So, for instance, in the in the customer example where you have the the gender thing in there, you know, if you have a view that's coming off of that table, you can shape data you know, accordingly. Now it may be, it may be a thing where you have to slightly change because that example, you know, now there's a new item added to the set, but in other cases it might not. So you you can sort of insulate yourself and you can make it so that 
someone else can fix the problem without you having to recompile your app. Exactly. And redeploy. Yeah. The next one is the model of CRUD doesn't accurately reflect reality. And the problem here is you don't update your personal record, you move, you get married, all sorts of other things happen. You have a kid. Yeah. You get divorced. You know, you don't go and update a record, you yeah. I didn't change. I didn't check a box that says has beard. I just didn't shave. Right. And this is something that developers seem to do a lot of is when you have a model of reality that's based on the way the machine works, what ends up happening is, is you push that model onto the world instead of it going the other way. And so it's, it's a pretty insidious thing because you end up in a situation where, first of all, the way that you have to express things doesn't match reality and you can't make it match reality. It's like not having, um, uh, like like a word for something. Like for instance, um, I'm sure there's some you know there's some tribe somewhere that doesn't have a word for I don't know music. They don't have that. I, actually, I kind of doubt that. But let's say that there was some hypothetical tribe that didn't have a word for music. Okay, selling these people symphony tickets is going to be hard. Yes, because they don't have a word for it, and you can easily get yourself into that situation because you're using limited. You're using limited metaphors for what's actually going on, and so you're having to bend those to shape shape it towards the world versus letting the world push in. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, and th- this can really get this can really burn you as well because what what will end up happening is is you go oh like let's say that you know we have a user and we say we want a you know we want a primary email address and a secondary email address, right? Okay, cool. What happens when a user wants a third one? Right? The database will allow it. Like our verbiage for that will tend to be, you know, master detail table, not here's their two pieces. So it right. it bends reality or the expression of reality in a way that's not useful from a design perspective. You you can box yourself in. This is kind of hard to explain, but when you've hit that wall, you know what I'm talking about. Well, no, I, it it makes sense because a lot of what I do is taking older systems and rebuilding them into more modern systems and we're trying to automate things and put a lot of forms that have had to be filled out by hand online so that people can fill them out. Well, a great example is one of the forms that people have to fill out. It is multi-purpose and you select, all right, this is why I'm sending this in. So you may already have a permit and you need to make an alteration on that or you may need to add someone to it or something like that. And so you send in the same form that you send in for a new one, just with just the changes on it. You say like the LLC form. Right. That I had to file every year. It's like, oh, I'm creating a new LLC. Oh, I'm editing the address. Oh, I'm changing the owners. And it's all on that one form. Yeah. And the, the idea was so that at least from a legislative point of view and from, you know, a government point of view, they only had to have one form. Right. To get approved and, you know, one form to, to track and things like that. But when it starts applying to, oh, it's filling it out online, they don't need to fill out all that information to change one field in the database. Right. And I mean, think about how validation works there, too. Yeah. How complicated that gets with a multi-multi-purpose 
form like that. You got to say, well, if this checkbox is checked, these five things are required. But if it, you know, if this one's checked and this radio button is on this setting, then, you know, these other two things are required. And this one thing we were required before. Yeah, I don't require that. Like, oh, yeah, you end got- up in that real fast. And we're there in another app. It's an inspection app. I got to go out on one of those inspections and it's a stack of forms. That it's, oh, if they have this, then we fill out these forms. If it's this, we have these forms. If it's this, these forms. And that is all in one mobile application. Yeah. And that sounds horrendous. So the solution to this is to express things in terms of entities and operations on those entities. And then figure out how to project those into a data store and retrieve them. Basically, the idea here is to use the model of reality of the world around you and push that into the database. You know, don't try to force the data structure, the database model onto the world because that's not going to work. The world is a lot bigger than your database, no matter what big data says. (laughs) But uh, you want to model your data after what is in the world around you. Now, you can make some adjustments. It's, it's just like the map is not the path. You're modeling the world, but you need to model the world and not try to force the world into that model. Yeah. Cause the other thing too, is if you start your model at what reality is, you know, and, and then go towards the database with it, if there are edge cases, you're more likely not to have as many problems with those just as a rule. Cause you know, like if it's stuff that's not known, it'll still be reflected in the way the world works. Right, right. So the next one is entities in your app are constrained to what the database will understand, not what your language or even the business rules can express. Yeah, and and this can really hurt you because it makes the the design decisions that you're making look really illogical to shareholders. So for instance, they go, well, a person has an address. What do you mean there's multiple addresses for a person. Well, of course, you know, there are, but they have a primary, right? And, and yeah. so the, the business owner's like, why why can't you just store address one, address two, address three in here? Because if you're going from the database-centric model out, you're gonna you're also going to apply like third normal form or something along those lines, and you're you're going to structure things in a way that doesn't really look right to the business people. And it makes them question your logic and that's not a place you want to be in. Things like inheritance, polymorphic relationships, and hierarchical relationships are harder to represent in a relational database. So much so that developers designing that way will avoid using them when it makes sense to try and avoid the headache. Yeah, and it, it, this is almost a uh, moral hazard type thing, right? Like if you're if you're starting with that, you're giving the developers opportunity to try to cut out work in the future that that's painful. Mm-hmm. But uh, what you end up doing is you end up expressing things in terms that the business people and stakeholders don't understand. And and that makes sense because we had this kind of debate just today at work about a certain transaction and the consequences of it being wrong. And because we're going from a paper form that people submit to a this is online, you can fill it out yourself and make a payment. Right. And if they if they mess something up, the consequences of that and things like that. And it had to be pointed out, look, this is this is the cost of doing online business. 
is that if things get messed up, yes, it's going to have to go through a process to refund them unless you want your employees looking over their application before they make a payment and have a process for that. And it was like, well, the point is the payment is they have to make the payment before it gets viewed. It was this whole back and forth. It was like that, then that is, that is the risk of doing business online is that somebody might overpay or underpay and they have to get a refund or have to be told you need to pay more. And I'll give an example of a, a situation that happened to me. The app I work on at work, uh, we have, we have an editor and basically, you know, there's, there's like a backer that's on it and then you've got editable content areas so it's like for you know for billing and stuff and so you can have you can have an editable area in there that has specific verbiage that the user can edit and you can also change that verbiage based on conditions so you can say okay if they're from tennessee put this verbiage in if they're from kentucky put this verbiage in right but in the ui you know the area is already available it's locked in but the way that the database was designed you have a thing that represents the text that's in there and under that was the conditional and it should have been the other way around but because the way it was designed it 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 came out backward and so you end up with a situation where it's like i have to when they go in to edit and they say okay I'm, i'm adding a condition i have to create the parent record first and you get a lot of weird illogical behavior because they're like why is there a stub record here when oh i i created that conditional but then i didn't save it and I canceled out. Well, now there's a stub. And so you spend a lot of effort just hacking around that. And that's because of the way the database was structured. And it you can kind of run into the same sort of thing, not even with a bad database design, but because you can't represent it well in a database at the level that you're looking at it when you're first designing it. So the solution to this is to build the object model and store it to a document database or some other non-relational store. Then figure out your underlying data model later. Yeah, and I've you know I've seen a lot of people do this. You know, you start with UI design and go, okay, what do I have to show, and how's that going to be shown? What shape do I need the data in? Especially like with the web, how do I need the data shape to represent this UI? Okay, now that's your that's the payload that's coming across the wire. Now, how do I uh, you know construct this object server side? And then the last thing they do is they build the tables that store it. That's the way our former UI lead talked about it. He got promoted. But that's the way that a lot of the modeling for the newer apps, because it was the front end that was pushing this new model of doing Angular and .NET APIs. And so that's the way a lot of things are designed, because it was the, the front end guys are like, we want to bring in this newer technology to do these views, to do these really cool things. And so they, they designed that way in mind. But then you have the database people that have been there for decades that are going, all right, but we also have to integrate with the old databases and make, you know, transfer the data from them to the new system and things like that. And so you get me as an API developer caught between and pulled in both directions. Yeah. And the front end guys are actually, their approach is probably the better one because what, what is closer to the real world, the abstract data model that's, that's based on storage constraints or the UI model that's based on how a human being interacts with the system. And I like to think that I've done a good job of helping to mitigate and balance that. seems like that's what a lot of the API does is to, to mitigate that. There's been a lot of times where the API developer said, all right, well, I'll have to spend some time figuring out how to do that. I'm like, you know, I know how to do that on the API. It's business logic thing. I know how to do that on the API. We should just do it there 
and I can create an endpoint that you call and get the information back. Yeah. He's like, oh, well, that makes life easier. Yes. You know, because he's, he's thinking in terms of the front end. And that makes sense from his, his perspective. And then we get together and talk about it. And he's like, oh, there's a way to do that. And then some other, well, when I was working with Cody, he would come to me and say, hey, can we do this on the, on the back end or would it be better to do it on the front end? And we'd have, we'd have that. Now I've gotten, uh, the, the other developer that I work with to start doing that where he'll say, Hey, which is more difficult? You creating the, this functionality or me creating it? You know, who, who needs to figure out how to do this? And so it's, it's kind of cool. We have a great relationship on the, the way we interact in that aspect. The next problem is that CRUD approaches mess up your development timelines. And so here's kind of what this looks like. You initially start out and you have a data model that you built, you know, during a specification phase, and then you stand up some screens real quick. And, you know, it only takes a few minutes. You get going, you're able to show them to management. They ooh and ah, because now they can actually see the thing. And then they want something else. Um, They want some small tweak to it. They want a screen that's more complex. Now your timeline is at risk. And the reason this is at risk is because they saw you do something that looks complex to them. Bear in mind that they don't know how complex any of this stuff is. And so what do they end up doing? Well, they they go, okay, you should be able to build this other form in a few minutes too because you built these easy ones. They don't have a, a way of determining how complex something is as a developer because they would be a developer. That's like the, uh, the idea of let me mock up a data structure for you with access and they go, Oh, that's great. Let's use it. Yes. (laughs) Right. Because uh, you know, that's, that's one of the dangers of the way of, of prototyping with live code. And this is why if you ever see me prototype something, what do I do? I get like, you know, pencil or balsamic or something like that. And I make the sketchy layout, right. That's, you know, the buttons that are kind of slightly off of square and, and all this stuff that looks like somebody drew them by hand to make it very obvious that this isn't the real thing. Yeah, and and there's there's sketching it, and then there's being a designer and creating designs. Yeah, and, and those are two different things because we do have a designer that creates designs and then passes those like images to the front end team to build. Yeah, one thing's a specification for the front end team, but another thing is something you're showing stakeholders. Right, and you remember my big lesson in this. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord, that was fun. That was yeah. the first the first project I had ever written specs for. That was my first solo project when I was working with you, and I I did that. I went all out on the. It wasn't a design spec. It was just my wireframe had colors and images in it. Yep, and should not have because that caused no end of trouble. And it was with a friend of ours. Which doesn't even get into the complexity of if it was for a client that is not someone you know personally and can work with and talk to, but someone you meet with once a week or something. Yeah, and to some degree, I kind of let that happen to you, although a lot of it was you, you had it done before before I noticed. <laughs> but you know, I saw that one coming, and I was like, well, you know, he's... He's going to learn this either way, and this is not a real bad time to learn it. But you can do the same thing here is you create a set of expectations for what the client, you know, what, what they think that they're going to get out of you and the amount of time they're going to get it. And then you have to live up to that. And you can't because you simplify, you know, you automated the simplest parts. 
so the solution is you can still do crud but you have to communicate very well that that approach only works for simple scenarios and i'll tell you something else your crud generator probably lets you bend the rules a little bit in other words you can do slightly more complex scenarios than the basic one don't tell them right um it's easier to argue over a binary thing you know Black versus white versus shades of gray because somebody will go, oh, can't you make the gray just a little darker? Like it's it's easier to say, look, this this can't be bent beyond take the table, make a UI screen. Even if you can add post save hooks and if you can do all these other things, like don't break all that stuff down because they're going to start asking for that. That's not how you build an app because you're going to hit hit the wall soon. Be be strategic on this. Don't don't screw up there because I've done that and it sucks. Yeah, I can I can believe that I've. I've been asked to do things that were a bit beyond crud for some of our apps. And oof, you know, I, I got them done and the, it needed to be done. It was something that had to be done. We were, I was still early enough on in my career that I didn't know there were other ways of doing things. Yeah. And if you build out a crud form and you, you build, you know, it's the basic crud form, you know, every, Every little tweak is just a little bit more expensive, and it eventually piles up, and you can't deal with it. Mm-hmm. And, and that—that's the thing to worry about. Is think about the political implications of what you're doing, because you can very quickly paint yourself into a corner, and they will not be sympathetic. Exactly. Finally, CRUD approaches mess up your own estimates after the fact. So we've talked about messing up development timelines, sort of before and when they're going on. They can also mess you up afterwards as well. And the problem here is a year after a CRUD app is put into production, a change request comes in. Your developer makes an estimate on fixing it based upon reasonable assumptions about the app. CRUD can confound this. Yeah, and a, you know, a big example of this is where, okay, you've got a form and it looks normal and you're saving, right? Mm-hmm. But you've got, you know, pre and post commit hooks, you've got audit trailing, you've got all these other things that are tightly entwined with that because they're having to work around the CRUD model. And you want to, say, add a column. Well, what would you normally do? Oh, it's a CRUD form. It looks like a CRUD form. Therefore, I'll add the column and regenerate. Now, your post commit hook is gone. Your audit trail is gone. Your your pre commit hook is gone. Your... Your valid, you know, your special validation that you hand coded JavaScript code for is gone. So, you've got to do a git revert and... uh, you know, yeah. go back to it and you've got to recode it. So now instead of a regen process, it took a couple of minutes. You might be in for a day, mm-hmm. depending on, on how nasty it is. And so this can really blow estimates out of the water and you don't see it coming unless you specifically know what might have happened. Exactly. I mean, because I always try to make my estimates after I've looked at the code. Yeah. Um, and, and I do too. But there's a lot of the kind of shops that are going to push you to do like generated CRUD stuff. Have, tend to have like fast moving expectations that they don't give you time to actually give a real estimate. And so it's just like it, it exacerbates the problem. And then their reaction to the, to exacerbating the problem is to exacerbate the problem. Yeah, I can, I can kind of see that. But uh, I mean, I guess that's one of the benefits of where I work. We, we had this happen not too long ago where we pushed a pro, uh, we pushed an application to production. And then a few days later, they were having issues that we never saw in testing or UAT or anything. So even when the business team was in user testing, they didn't see it. It was only when they put it out into production. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, is like if you have a CRUD app and it's been sitting out there a while, people request changes. They request a lot of changes over time. And 
what will end up happening is the front end still looks the same, but instead of it being this clean generated code, you have like this raft of hacks behind it. Oh, yeah. And so anytime something has to change, it has to survive getting through those raft of hacks. Like I'm dealing with this at work right now. The guy had a very CRUD centric approach to web applications. And, you know, as a result, I mean, he even did the thing of like, okay, here's a page and this page is for this type and it saves them, it updates them, it deletes them. And it's a web forms page. So it's like holding stuff in view state and session state and going back and forth. And so if you're trying to trace through the app, it's horrendous to, to do that versus, hey, here's a discrete operation on a chunk of data. No, um, I mean, I use the uh, I use a repository pattern. I use controllers. So you use a repository over in Hibernate? Yeah. Of course, you're probably like actually loading. Like you're not, you're not doing entity-based uh, repository. So like you're, you're saying, okay, here's a, here's a customer with all their stuff. And I'm, and I'm calling it not, here's a customer like header record versus like you're getting, you're getting the aggregate root and all the stuff under it. Right. And dealing with that versus here's the header record. Here's the detail. Yeah. It it all comes in in one. That's a, that's what a repository is supposed to be. Yes. Um, but, you know, the typical way that repositories seem to get used, at least in the apps I encounter, of course, I, I, I tend to kind of clean up a lot of stuff. So maybe that's why I've kind of made a career out of it. It's like their understanding of it is very database centric. And so the, the way you fix this is you either use CRUD completely and understand that your app can't do anything else or you don't. More than likely, you can't get away with CRUD in this scenario. You can use CRUD in parts of your app. Yeah. But not all of it. It's not a, you either have a CRUD app or you don't. Yeah. You can have CRUD pieces to an app. Yeah. And that's perfectly valid. Uh, Lookup tables. Yes. Like, you don't want to code a UI and go, oh, here is a list of states in the union. I mean, like, you may have some little deal to, like, edit and add ones because, you know, hey, Puerto Puerto Rico might become a state next year. Mm -hmm. And you got to support that one guy that's got to make that entry one time. Yeah. <laughs> but what I mean, you, there's other reasons you might have something similar. But what you don't want to go, okay, I want to have you know atomic discrete operations around this. Like, no, your your create, read, update, delete, that's fine there. Mm-hmm. But when it goes to the level of okay, you have a complex aggregate structure of you know it's a it's an order and it's got order details and uh, line items and taxes and all this other crap that goes on it that. You don't want to do as a CRUD thing because it, it's that's not how the real world works. So I, I would say use CRUD or don't at the form level. Mm-hmm. Um, don't try to use CRUD and bend it into something it doesn't do. And the the problem is is when you do that, it's the problem is when you use it and it works for a little bit and then something changes. It's very politically difficult to go, hey, we have to rewrite this. People mm-hmm. hate hearing that you have to rewrite it because. They think, well, you could just make this one change. It's like, you could. But next time I have to make a change, you're also going to make me make that change. And the time after that. And eventually, rewriting it is going to be so difficult because it's it's no longer crud. It's difficult to work with, and it would be difficult to replace versus shifting over and going ahead and taking the hit. So on the whole crud thing, there's a reason early on that I didn't tell you why this was as bad. And part of it is is because it's just too much stuff. When you're learning, mm-hmm. you know, you think about like you have to kind of run out and run into some problems and then get help. And you run out and you run into some problems and you get help. Like you, it, it's almost like you can't 
you can't get to the end state unless you slam into the wall repeatedly, if that makes sense. Well, it's... Like, I would be a crap mentor if I told you the final answer because you wouldn't understand why it was important. Well, there is that, and it's also something where, like we said earlier, there are uses for CRUD. Yes. And it's more simple apps. It's a great thing to learn early on. And it's a good thing to put junior devs on. Right. And that's that's where I where I started was doing a lot of CRUD apps. I've grown to where I'm doing more than CRUD apps. I get to do some of the microservices. I get to do some of the other things. But I've also gotten to bring things in because once I got the CRUD apps down, I was able to do my job and learn. It's almost like uh, the interaction of your app with a database is the Zen Cohen of computer science. Mm-hmm. You know, Cohen, you know, K-O-A-N, not Cohen. Yeah. Because <laughs> <Right? laughs> they're like, Zen Cohen? <laughs> I don't know him. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, but it's like, you know, it's, it's a thing that it reflects your journey in a lot of ways because like you're, a lot of your older developers really trend a lot more towards CRUD style apps because that's kind of what we did and that's kind of what we discovered. And the database was a more reliable way to get data, you know, metadata out to the app. Right. For how things were structured versus having to code it ourselves because the languages were cumbersome. Mm-hmm. And so you can almost see like a, a marked change in the way the developers through the years have looked at this. Exactly. I, I definitely want to say that CRUD in and of itself isn't bad. You know, as you guys can see, most of the problems that we listed are process related. You know, there were a few technical problems in our list, but they're more about misuse of CRUD than anything else. Yeah, because tools are not bad. Right. It's the use of tools that gets you in trouble. Exactly. CRUD is a way of conceptualizing the relationship of how data is stored and transferred. You know, there are other ways to do this, which we plan to address in future shows. That pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, I was on the, um, I think it was the general Slack chat. It was one of our Slacks for, you know, the Complete Developer Network. And I was trying to express to some of the developers on there something, and I, and I had a hard time with it. It's a mindset thing. And it's that you, when you're, when you're writing code or you're building processes for people, Right. Human beings are messy. You know, like uh, George Carlin said, you know, imagine how dumb the dumbest person is and realize half of them are dumber than that. <laughs> um, now, here, here's the other part that he didn't say is all of us are in that dumb half at least part of the time. Right. Like on any given thing, we're stupid probably at least half or half of the time. And so when you're trying to build systems, you try to avoid like the obvious, you know, hey, this is a catastrophic failure. This is easy to prevent. You fix those things, but you can't fix all the things that can go wrong. And so you you have to start thinking about optimizing the balance between preventing problems and being resilient to problems. In other words, it's it's like sparring. Like you you figure out, okay, how can I work on my footwork and my blocks and my my ability to dodge and my agility and you know all that kind of stuff so that I don't get hit. But you also have to learn to take a punch because you will get hit. And so when you're constructing apps, you kind of have to think about it in, in those sort of terms. It's a, it's a cross between completely preventing injury and being able to sustain an injury and keep moving. So sometimes you don't want to build a fix into your app. Sometimes you go, okay, instead of trying to prevent this really difficult to prevent problem, because, you know, it's just, it's hard to do code wise or, you know, somebody 
you know, like you have an app that says, okay, well, we really don't like cat pictures here. Like, you know, our, the people, the people here, you know, really like, I don't know, e- Egyptian mythology and the cats are the guardians of the dead. And you want to keep that out, right? And they're uploading pictures. Well, you, you can't do that easily program- programmatically. It's kind of like that. Um, like that's a Google research project. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, it's, it's like that, uh, was it XKCD that uh, it, it had like one comic was, hey, I want you to allow p- people to upload pictures and say where they're from. It's like, oh, well, that's that's simple. Just need to get the geolocation off the pictures. Give me an hour and I'll do that. And he says, and then I want you to tell if it's a bird or a plane or a cloud. And she's like, all right, I'm going to need a research team, five years, thousands and thousands of dollars. Millions. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Millions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all this stuff. And yeah. So like, I get you. Yeah. So what happens here? Well, you say, okay, I, I can't look at that image. Now, machine learning is coming along. So, you know, like this this particular trick of the trade may not age as well as we would like. <laughs> but right now, it's a lot more effort to determine what this is a picture of. So, what do you do? Okay, well, they're offended by cats. So, when someone uploads a cat, you give them the ability to d- delete that thing. You don't go... Hey, you know, we're going to try to detect it. We're going to try to prevent it. You just go, yeah, let's just make it where they can clean it up and go on with life. Knowing the balance between those things is what makes a good developer. Well, it's like Facebook has the ability, you know, they may not, you know, they they try to filter their ads to the best of their ability. Yeah. But then they also have people can report the ads. You can say you don't want to see ads from this place anymore. You can hide them. Things like that. Yeah, and that's just that's just a more intelligent way to look at things. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't prevent everything. It's hubris to think you can. Mm-hmm. But what you can do is you can make it where it can be fixed after the fact. And that's just a smarter way to go. So, that's all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Look for us each week on Facebook Live before we record each episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time.